I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host and biblical hermanut for the week, Dean Dutloff. I'm your other co-host and biblical hermanot for the week, Matt Bernico. <laughs> it's me. I'm out in space. I'm reading these texts. And uh, and because of my spacious surroundings, they're coming through loud and clear in ways they hadn't before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel my, my head, the metaphor is going in the opposite direction. It's more of a diver suit. Um, mm. with that, what was that band that had that song about diving in? Uh, man, it's a, an old evangelical <laughs> poll. <laughs> it's not going to come. Someone out there is like, I know what it is. And they're screaming at the, the podcast. But anyway, diving in dive was the name of it. No, nothing CCM, uh, maybe late 90s, early 2000s. Anyway, it'll come to me later. I love this new bit that we're doing on our podcast where you describe a song very vaguely, and I'm like, guess what it is? It's really cool. People love it. They're crazy for this one. They love it. Uh, everybody's like, do that bit where you, you talk about a theme that is probably the, the generic theme of about a thousand CCM songs <laughs> from the period of 1995 to 2006. So uh, uh, That's what this show's about now. Um, let's see. We've been doing a bible study on this show for a few weeks we had a little bit of a break to talk with chase about stuff in the philippines but guess what we're back in the word we're cracking it in we've got our uh we've got our diving suits on our spacesuits on really anything that protects us from the elements of what's happening in the bible that's what we're putting on and uh people have said it they want more podcast content about these materialist readings of, of parables in your luck because we haven't had time to read anything else so we're gonna give you some more <laughs> um this week we're talking about the parable of the talents in luke and matthew an evangelical fave uh it was a, a suggestion from the discord and we're happy to take it and we're gonna read those parables in a minute uh, but what you get from this kind of non-theologized or allegorized reading is some really interesting practical advice about whistleblowing <laughs> and uh, class antagonism, things I would never have guessed. Uh, so no, never. we're going to get there, but maybe Matt, for folks who haven't tuned in and it's been a week for everyone else who has, what is even going on? What book are we reading? And uh, why are we talking about these parables at all? Dean, thanks for asking. I'm glad that you did. Um, we're reading a book called Parables as Subversive Speech by William Herzog. We've been kind of in it uh, for the last few here, uh, minus last week, because we did something different. But if you're interested, go back and listen to uh, our our episodes on parables, and you can kind of hear the whole thing. Um, 
In the very first one, we do kind of a lot of legwork and talk about language and how it works and, uh, you know, maybe some of the caveats to this uh, historical-only kind of reading, which there are some and maybe we'll get to again in this episode. Who knows? Who knows what we'll get to? But, uh, yeah, in, in this one, um, we're going to kind of follow along with the uh, the insight of William Herzog and what he tells us these, uh, these parables are about more, I guess, historically framed. Yeah, maybe to put a little bit more uh, on the table as well, what is really fascinating is Herzog has this kind of way of reading the, the parables as Jesus doing some popular education in the same way that Paulo Freire did popular education in Brazil. So trying to talk with people about their own surroundings using images that are familiar to them. And what it does is it sets up an interesting way of seeing the parables both uh, as kind of you know, not like total puzzles or mysteries that have to wait for us in this century to kind of unlock their their uh, <laughs> spiritual uh, locks, but instead uh, morals or, or kind of stories that would have been heard pretty immediately by the people around him. So it helps us to maybe think through how do the parables get heard and also to think through what's Jesus doing with them, trying to help people understand their own situations of exploitation and, and liberation and so on. So that's kind of the general uh, vibe here. And I'm excited about this parable. I thought, Matt, one thing we could do to set it up is talk a little about the the parable and kind of how our, our evangelical brain has been trained to read it. But before we do, we should get it on the table. Um, you've been reading all the parables. Do you want to read this one again? I mean, you're a great lector this time around, or do you want to break in this episode? <laughs> no, I'll do it. I'll do it. All right. All right. Here we go. This is, um, this parable shows up in Luke and Matthew, but we're going to read, uh, the Luke bit and we'll kind of tell you what happens in Matthew that makes it a little bit different. Just some interesting Bible trivia, really. But anyways, here it is. Luke 19, the parable of the 10 talents. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable. Jesus, that's Jesus in this one. He, he is Jesus. <laughs> because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant region to receive royal power for himself and then return. He summoned 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 talents and said to them, do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. Nice. <laughs> Me either. When he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by doing business. The first came forward and said, Lord, your talent has made ten more talents. Good for him. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of ten cities. Then the second came, saying, Lord, your talent has made five talents, he said to him, and you rule over five cities. And the other came, saying, Lord, here is your talent. I wrapped it in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you're a harsh man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reap what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten talents. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> I'm surprised. I tell you, to all those who have more will be given, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Yikes. A big one. <laughs> a big one. A big ending there. Um, in Matthew 25, the same parable pops up there about the talents. The language is slightly different. Uh, the, uh, the, the king bit is kind of omitted um, and switched up a little bit. Uh, but the end, the ending is um, a little bit more ominous, even than <laughs> being slaughtered in their presence. Uh, the ending of Matthew 25 ends with, as for this worthless slave, throw him to the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. So these parables um, are things that I think I grew up reading in church or hearing about in church and hearing sermons about in church. And I've been taught to read them in a really particular way. Uh, Dean, I imagine that's probably the same for you. Uh, but let's let's walk through it here. Um, in in this parable, the way this usually goes, at least in my experience, is that um, there there's a story and the setting, yeah, whatever you know, it's it's old Jesus times, <laughs> things are dusty, <laughs> lots of tumbleweeds blown around. I guess I have no idea. I have no idea what <laughs> what uh, I don't know the setting really looks like. Um, but there is a guy with a lot of money. Um, and that guy is actually just a, st- a stand-in, or as William Herzog says, a cipher for God. Um, and then there are these uh, servants, and there's the servant that makes um, the guy a lot of money. There's another servant that makes the guy a lot of money, and we want to be like those servants, the ones that take God's stuff, whatever God gives us, <laughs> his hardest <laughs> battles or whatever, uh, and uh, we make it, uh, you know, we seize the moment, we uh, capitalize upon the opportunities, and we don't just like sleep on on the things that this uh, this great God has given us. Um, whereas the the bad servant, the one that gets thrown out into the outer darkness, uh, that's the kind of guy you don't want to be like. Uh, so don't be like that guy because uh, you gotta you gotta do something with the things that God's given you. Is that more or less the the reading that you've you're familiar with? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think uh, I remember specifically in a college class that I had once at a very weird evangelical school. Um, that this was also a, a great sort of example of why capitalism is a good biblical theme, right? That God is the the uh, investment capitalist, and if you really want to, you know, be a good steward of the things that God gave you, then you should uh, invest them, and and so on. So in some cases too, it is uh, invoked as a, an explicit defense of capitalism as such. God has given you his most bored apes, and uh, you've <laughs> decided to take more than one hit of that slurp juice. And uh, you've really capitalized on his his most his most non fungible tokens. <laughs> I hate this. I hate <laughs> all the words that you're saying. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, that's uh, never mind. Now I gotta stop. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, what if I told you, Dean, that uh, this way of reading the Bible, where God is a God is the capitalist uh, who is <laughs> pretty shitty. <laughs> Honestly, in the story, um, what if I told you that uh, that's not the way to read it at all? What if I told you that the the capitalist is the bad guy and the servant who did nothing with the talents is the good guy? Oh, I'd be so relieved. Well, get ready to be (laughs) relieved because that's exactly the case here. That's so cool. So the thing about the story that you have to understand is that our ears and our brains and our structures of knowledge are such that we we're coming to the we're coming to the text with capitalist brain. And that's bad for us. Um, it, capitalism prohibits us from kind of seeing, I think, what's exactly going on in this story. Um, you know, were we different people? Were we of a different sort of like um, class um, formation? Maybe we would see things differently. We'll talk about how that kind of works out in, in a few minutes here. 
But uh, if you take into the context of the uh, the moment where Jesus is telling this parable, and you're you're kind of taking into the context of the people who are listening to it, what you find is uh, the meaning of this parable is actually uh, quite different than what you would get in church. Yeah, I think that is something we've seen over and over in Herzog, right? It's uh, about reconstructing some of the political economy of the hearers, reconstructing as far as we can what's going on and trying to kind of parse everyone out. Um, And maybe to pull in a a term that I've really liked from Herzog that we've been mentioning, uh, we're trying to resist the impulse to... um, what does he call it? Not theologize, but uh, it sounds like that. Theologize. Yes. The, how is it? <laughs> Say it again. Theologize. Theologize. All right. An ugly word to say, but a very useful concept. <laughs> it looks better written on a piece of paper in a book, never to be spoken out loud. That's exactly right. You only read it in your mind's eye. Um, yeah. Uh, but the, the idea is uh, looking at a parable and then trying to find all the, the sort of actors or pieces that map really neatly onto spiritual life. So you find who God is, you find who you are or sin is or whatever, and you kind of sort it all out that way. And conveniently, also, you ignore lots of other actors or details in a parable as well. So um, the the thing that Herzog is always trying to do is to help us resist that impulse. And instead of rushing to figure out exactly what is the, the kind of spiritual overlay that you could put on top of this, uh, try to figure out instead, well, what's really going on? What's going on in the parable? And uh, that takes a considerable amount of work. So we're going to try to summarize a little bit about what's going on. So if you've been with us this far... Uh, the last couple episodes we did with Herzog, we've been kind of fleshing out a picture of the ancient world. So it's a world of political intrigue. There's a lot of Game of Thrones style diplomacy going on here. If you're an elite, you are an extremely small percent of the population. And also the elites are constantly trying to amass uh, land and wealth, which they do through a number of means, but especially by dispossessing peasants in particular. And there's kind of a whole interlocking system of uh, exploitation going on. So there's tribute that comes from the kind of royal leaders. And you get that here in this parable with Luke that we're kind of encountering a guy who's off to get his royal rewards or whatever. Uh, in Matthew, it's a little bit different. The character, the the person, the investor, we could say, is not a, a royal person, but just a, a kind of arbitrary elite. Um, so there's also kind of merchants running around and people trying to build their own wealth. But the picture is you have all this kind of game of exploitation at the top and people trying to like outdo each other and, you know, one up one another so that they can get closer to the seats of power and maybe even take it themselves, amass the wealth. And meanwhile, all these people that Jesus is hanging out with, there's no social mobility for them, right? They're basically condemned to at best work the land that they are on and hope that it doesn't get taken away via, you know, foreclosure or, I don't know, invasion or, or whatever else. So it's this kind of really brutal system. And uh, what Herzog keeps calling attention to is that Jesus is, is wandering through that brutality and trying to help people kind of imagine their way into the, the exploitative relationships that they're never actually part of. So, you know, <laughs> how Jesus knows this or how other people know it, Herzog says, maybe it's common knowledge, maybe this is just the idea of what's going on, but it's all very interesting, so we can try to maybe uh, explain a little bit about what's happening here in this parable too. So, let's get maybe one quote on the table here. So Herzog says, 
Because the entire system was fundamentally built upon the households of the elites, the aristocrats who headed these powerful families required the assistance of internal bureaucracies. The staff of household retainers included stewards, scribal accountants, tutors, and other related figures. The household bureaucracy, in imitation of the imperial bureaucracy, was organized hierarchically, the most competent and trusted retainers rising to the highest level. The head of the household could not stay home if he intended to protect his interests and expand his influence. Not only would he travel to his estates, but he would travel abroad in hopes of increasing his investments, initiating new business schemes, building patron-client networks, currying favor with imperial, imperial warlords, or perhaps representing his city in some official capacity. For the accumulation of his wealth, the basis of his power and prestige to continue in his absence, he needed to entrust important portions of it to his household retainers. These powerful figures were not household slaves, although they may very well have been called douloi, or slaves in translation, to emphasize their dependence on their patron master. So, a few things that are coming out here already with Herzog. Uh, we've got this vision of, of hierarchy. People are, you know, kind of up the chain, whether or not the person who is at the top thinks they're competent and trusted. And in this particular picture uh, of the talents that we get, the servants or slaves, they're, uh, you know, I think we're kind of trained to read that as like the lowest station of society, but uh, we have to retrain our, our brains not to see it that way. Uh, to entrust somebody with a talent is to entrust them with a ton of money. Um, and uh, these sort of servants would be uh, in that kind of elite network, not in the network of peasants and so on. So already there's kind of some shifting going on here. I don't know, Matt, anything in that kind of stage setting that really sticks out to you so far? Yeah, I think the things I would just stress is is that Herzog kind of goes to great lengths to build the case um, and explain like the particular class position of the people in the story that the, well, in Luke, you know, it's this person that becomes king. <laughs> and in Matthew, it's somebody who's just sort of like the master of this house. Um, but they are extremely rich, like top 1% rich. Rich, 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 right? And they're giving talents out to these servants, and, and you don't just give talents out to anybody, right? Talents are mm -hmm. a lot of money. Like, a, I don't know, kind of like an unimaginable amount of money, I think. Uh, I don't know exactly how it would factor out in, uh, <laughs> in, in dollars and cents right now, but all that say, like, these are servants, sure, but they are, like, the upper echelon of servants. So you're getting a narrative here um, that is, uh, you know, if you were a, a peasant in <laughs> in uh, Galilee or Jerusalem or whatever, you would hear these things and it would ring a bell in your brain. You would know exactly who these people are. They are not like, you know, they're not you. <laughs> they are people far above you. Um, and that becomes a, a, pr a pretty big deal uh, when it comes to the conclusion of the story as well. Yeah, these are the, the Pete Buttigieg's to the Joe Biden of the story, <laughs> That's right. if you will. <laughs> I will. A great analogy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the story has some interesting twists and turns, um, but let's kind of go maybe a little bit beat by beat through the story and hopefully we'll hit some of the most important pieces that Herzog tells us to pay close attention to. So uh, Herzog starts here. The opening scene depicts a wealthy aristocrat assigning to three retainers proportions of his assets according to their status in his household hierarchy. Um, an interesting note that he does make in here too, that I, I we didn't kind of put the whole quote in here, but that a lot of the assets of these particular aristocrats would not be like they're liquid, right? They're not like sort of material. So 
this is something that uh, the aristocrat would have it had to have like gone out of his way to do on his way out of town. Like, you know, it's like a specific act of entrusting small things to uh, people um, to, to make sure, you know, hopefully, hopefully that they do a good job or something. Uh, so this is like a, not just like a, an afterthought, but this is like a particular scheme. I think that this, that this aristocrat in the story is kind of performing. I guess that's important, right? It's, mm-hmm. there's a sense in which like, there's sort of a moralistic reading to this in Matthew where it's like, this is like a test given by the aristocrat to, to their servants. But I think that's kind of the wrong way of thinking about it. it this is a scheme. This is a scheme to get rich, <laughs> to get richer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an important piece here. Right. Actually, that's a really important piece that it's not a, a testing because that's also how we're trained to read it by doing the kind of theological analogizing, right? right. That uh, we're always being tested as well. What are we going to do with what God has entrusted to us? And then, you know, you better multiply it. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell, <laughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, right. pretty severe consequences. Um, well, that's actually a good point, though, because when I when we were talking about the evangelical readings of the story, I mentioned that, you know, you don't want to squander the things that God's given you or whatever. But then there's also an eschatological reading here, too, where, right. um, you know, this is like all about the, the test of the end of the days. And uh, if you don't do what God wants you to do, then you do get thrown to the outer darkness, which is not not where you want to be (laughs) right so uh yeah it's important to again just kind of deconstruct that particular reading already and try to figure out what else is going on and i think it's it's great to to as you said kind of see this as a get rich scheme um because herzog also goes on to say in the ancient world like this is not a capitalist economy um but this is kind of a proto-capitalist maneuver right um this is what capitalists do. They take their capital, they invest it, and they hope to grow that capital in all kinds of different ways. Um, But uh, the ancient world privileges still use value over exchange value, to use Marxist terms. So for uh, this particular person to go take all these things that have use value, whatever it might be, land or, I don't know, however he decides to kind of make his living, uh, to take all of that and turn it into liquid uh, money that he could, liquid capital that he could put elsewhere uh, is a great effort. And you won't, he's only doing that in order to, uh, you know, turn a big profit, not to find out if the if he can trust those servants. And um, Herzog says to the servants would have passed all kinds of tests already. The whole point is that they they've already earned their trust. So there's something similar. If you listen to the episode we did on uh, the parable of the wicked servant, there's something similar going on there, right? These are people who've already kind of earned their place at the top. And that's exactly why they're getting let in on the scheme. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's also the case, too. I mean, the servants have kind of undergone these tests, but they also know the deal, right? This is not a mystery to them, what they're supposed to do with these talents. Right. Um, Herzog says that uh, the, you know, it's it's it'd be pretty normative, I think, in, in that situation. He says that the master's initial investment must be secured, then doubled. After that, the retainers can make their profit. They're always walking a tightrope, keeping the master's gain high enough to appease his greed and not incur his wrath, while keeping their own accumulations of wealth small enough not to arouse suspicion, yet lucrative enough to ensure their future. So the uh, the the scheme nature of this whole thing, I think, is very important, right? That the uh, <laughs> the the master gives the servants this kind of like task to perform, and the servants know like. Well, they're going to get something out of this, right? <laughs> that uh, if they play their cards just right, they're going to get some profits, and then uh, you know they have to fork over, um, they have to fork over a, a doubled portion of the talents, and that's cool. And they're going to pocket the rest, and that's great for them. <laughs> that kind of increases their standing. 
um, with the master, but it also, you know, increases their own household and stuff like that. So um, I, I think I, I just want to don't read this story as just like a weird test that some guy gives some other people. <laughs> this is this is a get rich a get rich quick scheme for sure. Um, and even beyond that, so okay, I, I think kind of laying things out here. You know, we, we have a master. They um, they tell their servants to go make some more money, and uh, we have exactly why the servants would do that, right? Because they're going to make some money too. I think the really important thing about this story, um, or at least something that this story hinges on that we as listeners in 2022 do not hear, is that like, uh, how do you do that? How do you get 10 talents and how do you turn it into, you know, 12 more? And so you can pocket two of them. Um, And Herzog is really clear on this and and pretty helpful. and, and the listeners would have known this instinctively, so Jesus doesn't even say it in the parable, not instinctively. They know it because it's their lived reality. Um, this is what Herzog says. The elites used their wealth to make loans to peasant farmers so that the farmers could plant their crops. Interest rates were high. Estimates ranged to 60%, which is extremely high, and perhaps as high as 200% for loans on crops. Yikes. The purpose of making such loans was not so much to make a large profit because, uh, you know, the peasants probably couldn't pay that much, right? Because <laughs> they're peasants, they're farmers. Um, at least by uh, the standards of the ancient world, they probably couldn't do that. Um, but the the point was to take their land as collateral for the loans so that the elites could then, in the future, foreclose on the loans in years to come when the crops would not cover the incurred indebtedness. So... Um, we know why the master did this. We know why the servants of the master did this. And now we know how they did it, right? They are doing it by, I mean, this is primitive accumulation. They're tricking, I mean, I guess tricking, depending on your perspective, but they're tricking farmers into putting their land up as collateral so that they can then foreclose on that land in the future, right? They're robbing poor people is what's happening. Exactly. And Herzog also says there's kind of something of he calls it uh, an honest grift that goes on here as well. So the means of growing it is, you know, pretty clear. You're uh, um, you're exploiting people through loans and indebtedness and and so on. And land is kind of the, the top commodity, really, at the end of the day, or the top thing to be commodified, maybe is a better way of putting it. Uh, but uh, at the same time, there's all kinds of other deals on the side and so on that Herzog says is just sort of like part of what it means to be in this system. Like you, you've got your own little contacts and you kind of exploit those contacts throughout. So in order, like once you get a big sum of money to kind of play with and invest, uh, then that means you're also going to be able to grow your own kind of networks and uh, get some kickbacks from people along the way. So there's a lot of interesting self uh, kind of aggrandizing pieces to this, too. Uh, Herzog goes on to say, by combining the talents they received with the raw goods extracted from the peasants who were controlled by their household, the servants had the means necessary to increase wealth. But to do so, they had to exploit the peasant or village base of the household, the merchants with whom they entered into a common venture, or the peasants to whom they made loans. In this respect, the first two retainers are as alike as peas in a pod. In the same way, communicates as much. That's the language in the parable. They both use the same exploitative economy to increase the plunder that constitutes the master's wealth. Jesus' hearers would have had no difficulty identifying the type of figure represented by the servants in the parable. They had to contend with them daily, and they understood their role as exploiters. 
So super important, right? <laughs> when we read it as evangelicals, it's like, oh, the first two are uninteresting, uh, but they basically do what you're supposed to do. You get the talent that God gives you, you get the uh, the wealth or, or whatever God gives to you, and your job is to go increase it. But here, if you were a hearer of the parable, um, it's like, oh, yeah, I know all about those two. Those guys are assholes. <laughs> they come around <laughs> here and, uh, you know, try to foreclose on the land and so on and so forth. Uh, extremely bad people, and that's how they're getting their money. So the parables, uh, or the the hearers of the parable, would not have identified with them or or wanted to see them as kind of moral or virtuous characters. And I think that is a very important thing that your youth pastor should be made aware of right away. <laughs> Call your youth pastor up on the phone and tell them all this right now. <laughs> it's so important. Hold so, the phone up to the the podcast speaker. Right. <laughs> Hey, youth pastor, I got that new sound you've been looking for. Um, (laughs) So, okay, this is not just about getting rich, though. It's about a little bit more than that. Maybe, well, it's about getting rich primarily, but it's about (laughs) getting rich in a really particular um, monopolistic kind of way. Monopolistic kind of way. I don't know why I said it wrong the first time. Um, Okay, so Herzog continues on saying, by removing peasants from the land, the elites remove the obstacles presented by peasant reluctance to change their traditional ways, as well as the difficulties created by peasant suspicion of elites and the need to cope with endless peasant tactics for avoiding aristocratic demands on their products, on their products and their labor. The key figures in this process were the retainers of the elites who implemented these policies, and these are the types of... uh, and these are the types who appear in this parable. Okay, so, you know, this is like, um, uh, you know, when Marx says that uh, the capitalist class is the real revolutionary class, I feel like this is kind of what he's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Capitalism is always finding new techniques for dispossessing workers of their land or, you know, separating them from the means of production or whatever, right? And this is exactly, it's exactly that. Um, it These... Um, you know, the the parable of the talents, it's telling you something really particular, but there's this whole backstory to it that we just don't even hear. Um, but it has this really key economic, you know, kind of mechanism within it that basically would transform the ancient world. I mean, everyone would be probably pretty aware of this. I, I don't know. You, you know, you're a peasant farmer. This is happening to you all the time. So it's like, of course, you don't need to explain it. Right. And if we could pause even on the land issue, like, uh, that is such an interesting theme land, both in the, the Bible and in capitalism in general, right? So, uh, one interesting thing Herzog pulls out is this, this, uh, parable is basically like a manual on how to ignore the biblical laws about how you should treat the land. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't charge interest. Okay. They definitely did charge interest to make this money. Uh, don't exploit the poor, leave, uh, your land, uh, parts of it available to the poor. Uh, you know, they should be expecting there's going to be a jubilee year, all this kind of stuff. Um, it really kind of shows, I guess, how far the economic system has fallen from that that vision. And Jesus has some really subtle ways of like pointing that out rhetorically. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And a lot of that is bound up in a theology of the land, what it's for, what it's not for, and so on. Uh, but capitalism is so fascinating as an economic system, and especially in its historical development, because a lot of it has to do with how capitalists perceive land and how they treat it. So, for example, here you see it as a, a, what Herzog says. It's a something that you dispossess peasants of because they stand in the way of, uh, of progress and of, of different technical improvements to the land that maybe they don't want to do. That is the same exact logic that like England had with respect to Ireland, for example. Um, there's a really interesting book called Empire of Capital by Ellen Meekson's Wood, who 
is an interesting Marxist, uh, not without her problems, but <laughs> that book in particular is pretty good. And in it, she says like one of the big kind of logical tropes that the um, that the English used when they were colonizing Ireland was to say, oh, these Irish people, they just like don't know how to use the land. They they do a bad job with it. We know that we can maximize what you can get out of the land by farming it in this particular way instead of that way. And therefore, we basically have a divine entitlement to the land because God wants us to to do a good job. Basically, it's the reading of the parable that we're not supposed to have, that uh, God entrusts the land to us, we've got to make it multiply, and the Irish are not doing it. So it's naturally ours. Or, I mean... Well, it's the whole story. I mean, of like neoliberalism, right? In the exactly. world, it, this yeah. is the this is the story of, of course, like English colonialism in Ireland, and I'm sure English colonialism elsewhere as well. But yeah, I know less about that. <laughs> but also, I mean, it's also the whole story about structural adjustment programs. This is the story of the IMF. This is the story of the World Bank. This is the story of uh, you know uh, the whole post colonial world where uh, entire economies, you know, subsistence economies are transformed into capitalist economies, leaving people starving while they, you know, can create. Um, you know, some kind of value for whatever corporation uh, to sell <laughs> crops to other other parts of the world. Um, right. That's what capitalism does. E- even though this is sort of the 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 proto capitalist economy, this is like an economy in transition, maybe uh, from one form of political economy to another. I mean, the the consolidation of land and wealth into the hands of a, a few uh, aristocrats or kings or whatever is maybe good evidence of that. But this is it. Like um, this is how capitalism works, and. Yeah, I don't know. It's bad. <laughs> That's what I'm here to say on this podcast. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's important, too, to always be tying that land piece into it, right? Because, uh, I mean, exactly. The, so Ireland is the laboratory of colonialism, but that ends up becoming... Uh, that's the model that's expanded even rhetorically and logically to, you know, the so-called New World, to the Americas. Uh, that that argument about sort of the the failure of the Irish to... Uh, you know, to make the land profitable or to make it uh, fruitful. That's the same argument that colonizers used in the the so-called New World to justify um, taking land uh, from indigenous peoples and genociding them and so on, right? And so there's this actually really gross uh, confluence of a theological understanding about what it means to multiply God's favor or whatever, uh, plus this kind of capitalist desire to extract as much surplus value as you can out of a place. And I think that's one reason that, you know, there's been a lot of really cool biblical studies about land, like Walter Brueggemann has a whole book about the land that's really fascinating, lots of other stuff too. But it's also why, like, indigenous social movements are so important and and promising because, uh, you know, it's a completely different way of understanding land itself as uh, not first and foremost about profit generation, but, you know, other kinds of things that we have a responsibility to uh, live in mutuality with it rather than to, like, harness it and, I don't know, beat it into (laughs) submission or something. So all that to say, I don't know, a long aside, but I just think it's, like, it's really interesting to see this parable as already drawing out that kind of really basic, uh, awful sort of logical piece at the heart of capitalism and its relationship to, to land and human beings. It's a long aside, but a good one. The most important one, maybe. Um, all right, well, let's get back to the story though for a second. Um, so we've got this master, we've got this this big um, scheme to dispossess peasants of their land and their wealth and uh, concentrate it in the hands of the very few, and we hate it. 
Um, but that gets us to the kind of critical point in the story. There are these, uh, you know, they're the two servants who do the good thing. They they exploit the workers, the good thing, the quote unquote good thing. They exploit <laughs> the workers. They, you know, take their land. Do they do whatever? But then there's this third servant, and he's the one that, or she, I who knows? I mean, it was a patriarchal society. I mean, it still is, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm going to assume that this is a, a male servant. Um, <laughs> maybe carefully so. Um, so he uh, comes on the scene, and the master says, "What did What did you do while I was away?" And he uh, unwraps a napkin <laughs> and says, "I've got your talent right here. I hid it away." Because I know that you are a strict, cruel, and harsh and merciless uh, master, and I was afraid of you. And um, as the as it turns out, the servant was right to be afraid, and uh, sort of meets a pretty bad end in in both of the parables. Um, but there's something really interesting going on with this third person. Um, Herzog des- Herzog describes the third the third servant here, the one that is you know the the. Uh, gets a bad rap in the regular reading of the story. He's the hero, and uh, kind of surprisingly so, but I think it's important to read him that way. So let me read this piece here. The third retainer, the third bureaucrat, this guy, the one that does the thing bad that the master doesn't like, (laughs) cuts through the mystifying rhetoric that has dominated the exchange between the elite and his first two retainers, and he identifies the aristocrat for what he is, strict, cruel, harsh, and merciless. In effect, he shames his master through this unexpected attack. More to the point, the third retainer describes the aristocrat as an exploiter who lives off the productive labor of others. The master takes the lion's share of the harvest that others have sown, and he gathers it, and he gathers in what others have winnowed. In Luke 15.13, the same two verbs appear together, where they carry metaphoric meanings important to the speech. In Luke, the verb gather in suggests the conversion of goods into cash a meaning that is appropriate here. The aristocrat monetizes the wheat that others have winnowed. The prodigal scattering of his monetized inheritance is translated as squandering or wasting. The secondary meaning is apt. What does the aristocrat do with the wealth he has gathered in or monetized? He squanders it in riotous living, in socially approved forms of conspicuous consumption and status display. Um, there's an interesting note in here too that says that uh, like luxury goods or or like goods that you'd buy in the market were really you know only for these like kind of top one percent people. Um, you know, a peasant wouldn't go to the market to like buy I don't know an iPod or whatever. <laughs> um, just like uh, just you know, there's this consumer economy that's really only for the one percent, and that's what this uh, this master kind of does with it. He uh, he. He uh, exploits uh, through these servants, the peasants, he takes their land, and then he, like, squanders it uh, in in a way that's kind of, like, um, not honorable or, you know, doesn't kind of give the proper respect or dignity to the the people that he's exploiting. Uh, But what we get here, though, I think is a pretty interesting turn on this, like, third, um, this third bureaucrat, the third retainer, because uh, you think of him as the bad guy, but really... He's the guy that uh, does nothing so as not to exploit other people. Exactly. And that, too, is a, a kind of choice that ends up being a judgment on the whole process, uh, which I think is 
pretty fascinating. The scene here is so interesting, right? So the this rich person goes away on a big adventure to go get richer. And while he's gone, he leaves people at home to continue to build that wealth. Um, Herzog says too, just to contrast the class positions, the people who are hearing the parable would never have had the opportunity to travel anyway. Like <laughs> there's a complete lack of freedom of movement there in the first place. Um, and meanwhile, you know, this person, the, the third retainer buries the talent immediately the other two right away go to invest it uh but this guy is like now's my chance like i'm finally gonna stick it to him or whatever and he has to just kind of like wait (laughs) for the for the uh the rich guy to come back and i love that scene too right that this third retainer is just like planning the whole time to kind of uh you know tell his boss what he really thinks about him Uh, i think that's a great uh quitting scene i guess at the end here (laughs) yeah um but uh, the, the the real challenge is the, the judgment that happens afterwards, right? So uh, uh, we said it gets a little wild at the end. Here's how Herzog puts it. The judgment is immediate. Having spoken the truth, the servant must be vilified, shamed, and humiliated so that his words will carry no weight. It comes in the form of an address, wicked and lazy slave. The master does hear the servant's word as saucy. <laughs> but the context within the co- the codification is important. It's an oppressive elite who labels the servant wicked and lazy for the purpose of stigmatizing and, dis- and dismissing his implied criticism. Why should the hearer take the elite's word for it? Is it evil to return to the master what was his? Is it indolent to take proper precaution to safeguard the talent? The aristocratic master's address is not to be taken at face value, as so many commentators have done. It's an attack on a whistleblower. The servant has unmasked the joy of the master for what it is, the profits of exploitation squandered in wasteful excess, and he has demystified good and trustworthy by exposing the merciless oppression they define. Uh, I think that is so cool, right? Um, the idea, too, that, like, why should the hero take the elite's word for it is so funny when you have been trained in that evangelical way because it's right. like, I don't know, because I guess he's God, <laughs> right? Like, uh, you don't see that, uh, see God as the elite, and you see this servant as, like, rebellious, I guess, like, somebody who can't take the chastisement that God is giving to them and, and therefore, again, ends up deserving to go to hell. So I think it's really uh, neat for Herzog just to kind of open up that space to to question how we're reading it and, like, why don't we hear it the way the hearers would have heard it. Yeah, that's right. Well, Herzog goes on to say a few more things here about this uh, this third person in the parable. Uh, the third person here, uh, well, he says this. The hero of the parable is the third servant. By digging a hole and burying the aristocrat's talent in the ground, he has taken it out of circulation. It cannot be used to dispossess the peasants from their land through its dispersion in the form of usurious loans. By his actions, the third retainer disassociates himself from the system he has so cleverly exploited to attain his position in power and influence. Um, And then Herzog kind of goes to conclude uh, the meaning, I guess, um, or kind of expounds upon the meaning a bit of this uh, by saying, as long as whistleblowers act alone, they can be handled. Just as the owner of the vineyard singled out and handled the spokesman of the early morning workers, when one acts alone, one dies alone. The codification most likely created empathy for the third servant. He said what the hearers had always wanted to say, and right to the master's face. By hiding the talent, he also revealed that the retainers were necessary to the process of exploitation carried on by the aristocracy. What would happen if retainers identified with the peasants rather than the aristocracy? What would it mean for them to realize that their interests really do not lie with the aristocracy that exploits them and despises them even though it uses them? 
What would happen if retainers refused to carry out their assigned tasks? So I think this is interesting because in the end, what you get is not a parable about the end times or about being a good capitalist servant for God or whatever. Instead, it's about like the practicality of like speaking out against an exploitive person. And I think that's very fascinating. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, um, this is such – okay, I mean, like, first of all, there's a real practical application here, right? The the Bible is not all pie in the sky when you die. Sometimes it talks about exactly how you should talk to your boss. Um, don't go to your <laughs> boss as a single person and say to his face, you're a big stinky mean guy and I don't like you. Don't do it because they'll fire you. They'll bury you. Um, you know, in in the press, uh, you see it with union organizers all the time, right? Um, they were lazy. They weren't good workers. They had X, Y, and Z problem, all these things, right? Uh, but instead, um, it, this, this draws everyone into a bigger question. Um, what if the aristocracy is bad? <laughs> One thing they probably knew already. Um, what if the servants of the aristocracy, the retainers, what if they actually, you know, they're they're important to the process? And and what if they instead sided with the peasants? What if that happened? Um, what would it what would it mean for the rest of the peasants to you know see that? Uh, something Herzog notes even um, in the in the ending that's interesting is that uh, in Matthew, when it talks about, uh, you know, the servant was cast out uh, into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Herzog says that this doesn't mean hell because hell is an idea that I guess probably wouldn't have really resonated with anybody at the time. That's a sort of later Christian idea. Um, but uh, instead, it means like the outside the walls of this like sort of, um, you know, aristocratic household. It means um, that the only hope they really have for making making their way in the world is to become like a day laborer. It means uh, the, the gnashing of teeth specifically is really interesting because that's always a, a really scary phrase. But Herzog says that it's uh, it, it doesn't mean like, you know, smashing teeth or something, but it means like the chattering of teeth, like out in the cold. Right. So um, the sense that uh, the aristocrat sort of uh, is now downwardly mobile and <laughs> more like the peasants than not. Uh, but the question that Herzog asks, though, is like, you know, how would this um, how would this retainer, this bureaucrat of the aristocrat, how would they be like accepted into the the peasant spaces? You know, would they be, you know, uh, cherished as sort of like a class trader <laughs> or something? Or would they be uh, ostracized as uh, as somebody who has wronged them in the past? And uh, lots of interesting questions that this ends up raising, I think, for the people listening. Yeah, there's a moment in there, too, where he says, uh, again, thinking about the the context, in order to become the uh, bureaucrat that he was, he would have had to exploit all kinds of peasants already. And so to make this choice to drop out of the system means also dropping out into a system of your enemies, essentially, right? People that would have hated him just as much as they hated the other two uh, people in the, the story, the other two servants. And what Jesus is trying to kind of do is also maybe prepare people to receive folks who want to drop out, right? Like, uh, don't let a whistleblower drop out and then just be uh, cast aside, but try to, you know, think through what would it mean to kind of welcome that person in to uh, to that space, kind of recognizing that, um, you know, for the whole time in the story that the rich person is away, this person is plotting to be cast out into uh into the outer darkness right with weeping and gnashing of teeth uh they they know what's coming to them and still they decide to to do it they don't grow the talent they don't uh, continue the process of exploitation and uh so there's this sense in which by building sympathy for that character jesus is also trying to kind of like <laughs> stoke the 
popular movement by welcoming in uh, class traders and things like that too, which I think is, again, such a neat way of seeing Jesus as like a revolutionary strategist, kind of as we saw in the, the parable of the wicked, uh, the wicked tenants. Uh, it's fun to see Jesus trying to maybe prepare a movement, even if it doesn't really get off the ground that way. Yeah, that's right. Um, something interesting is that uh, as we've been reading these parables, we've also been kind of picking up on the ways that other people read them, um, especially in the Gospel and Solentonomics. It's our favorite book, and we like to talk about it. But it's also doing something kind of similar to what Herzog is doing in this book, but in a, a significantly different register. Um, in this chapter, however, it gets really wild because Herzog does mention the Gospel and Solentoname pretty straightforwardly. And he says that they have the right idea, more or less. Uh, Dean, do you want to talk about that part? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So he notes that uh, Oscar, in particular, a character in the Gospel in Salentaname, stumbles on basically the the right reading of the text. Uh, he understands that the rich person is an exploiter, and that's very bad. And he also sympathizes with the guy who tells him off, right? That uh, you uh, you reap where you do not sow. Uh, that's like a you know textbook sort of capitalist exploitation. Uh, but what's really fascinating is Herzog says um, Ernesto Cardinal actually steers them away from the right materialist reading into a more spiritualized version. And uh, I read it and I was like, that can't be right. Not our hero, Ernesto Cardinal. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's true. I, I read the the bit about this parable in the Gospel in Salentaname. And it's very interesting. Uh, it's true that, you know, the, the peasants themselves or the, the kind of hearers in uh, the first century, they have these similar kind of, I guess, hearings in Salentaname, maybe because of some similar class position or something. Uh, so they stumble on the right idea. But uh, Cardinal ends up suggesting that what Jesus is doing is saying, here's kind of how the world works. Uh, but God is is like that in reverse, that uh, love is really talent is kind of an allegory for love. God gives love to people and expects them to multiply it instead of kind of holding it down. And God is like not going to tolerate it if you don't spread the love around, if you just sort of bury it uh, and then he'll cast you out in the end. Right. So Cardinal, it's still kind of like a revolutionary gloss, I guess, on the evangelical spiritualization of the the story. Um, but it's also it, it is genuinely interesting that there's already this intuition among the people that, uh, you know, they, they catch the, the class interests at play pretty quickly. Um, but uh, Cardinal does uh, steer them down the uh, the devotional path in a way that's a bit of a bummer, but nevertheless, uh, a pretty interesting counter reading as well. And, you know, it's like uh, Cardinal goes as far as to say Jesus basically tells the story of like God as a, an investment capitalist, but with love. Um, God is a, a kind of mirroring the exploiters, but with uh, love. And I don't know, when you read it, it is very weird. But as we've said in the, the podcast before, um, the key in reading a parable or any kind of biblical text is not to, to determine the one single reading that lasts forever, but uh, to allow a lot of choruses of voices to come into play to try to discover what's there. So I think what I'll say about the Gospel in Salantaname, just to try my best to defend our boy Ernesto Cardinal, is if you have to do it, if you have to theologize it, if you have to analogize it, uh, Cardinal at least gives you the closest you could do it, but I still, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> the idea of God being the analogical uh, exploitative capitalist of love. Uh, it's bad news for me. I think Herzog is right. Well, if uh, if Cardinal was writing, you know, the, the transcription of Soltaname uh, a little bit later, if he had a chance to read Herzog's book, maybe things would have been different. <laughs> but uh, right. still, critical support for Ernesto Cardinal, uh, <laughs> and even in these trying times. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting though. I mean, you're you're right. Um, you know, even Herzog's reading is one among many, and I think that's fine. And you know, whatever. Um, maybe we can still kind of gain some interesting insights uh, from these other readings, and that's okay too. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but I don't know. Herzog's reading does put a particularly interesting spin on it, and it gives. I, I don't know. It, to me, it just seems like so strategically interesting that this is what Jesus goes out of the way to tell peasants. Um, Man, I just find that super fascinating, and uh, I'm here for other readings too, but that to me is <laughs> revelatory <laughs> and pretty fun. Yeah, I agree. And it's neat too because it gives you, you know, the it gives you, a, I guess, a window into the parable and so on to read the, the, the text as Herzog does. But it's nice too also to try to figure out how is Jesus strategically trying to help the people around him understand the the relationships that make them poor, right? Like Jesus is trying to create entry points for people to come to their own conclusions about systemic exploitation, about revolutionary strategy, about what works and what doesn't work. And he's doing it in this really accessible way, telling these stories, giving people a glimpse into a world that they will never participate in ever except as the exploitative kind of fodder of it uh the collateral damage of kind of what's going on in these imaginary stories and i think that is also very instructive like what would it mean for christians today to maybe think about that right to create occasions for average folks to kind of figure out you know how are they being exploited what is revolutionary strategy what's a way of doing it that is non-threatening jesus is not out here like the maccabees riling everybody up and getting them <laughs> to take up arms against rome he's trying to do something a lot more subtle he's really building a, a a base of power and i think that is so cool that jesus is not just a, a moralizing character but somebody who is actually thinking in a pretty nuanced and delicate way about what it would mean to build people power in the first century and he's doing it as like an itinerant storyteller uh, mm -hmm. what a neat thing i wish more pastors thought of themselves that way <laughs> Yeah, you know, it makes you, it makes me, I don't know, I don't want to say what it makes you do, but <laughs> it makes me think that, uh, I mean, if we have the ears to hear, Christianity should be looking a lot different, you know? <laughs> I mean, which is uh, maybe confirming what I already believe about Christianity or something, but uh, churches doing weird sort of spiritualized readings of the Bible, I don't know, feeling pretty suspicious of that right now. Uh, Jesus as organizer is a, a, a pretty compelling idea, and I'm really into it. It's uh, pretty exciting, I think, to think about Jesus in that way. Um, and I don't know, maybe gives your Christianity or your lack of it <laughs> some different legs <laughs> to walk on. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing I was thinking about, too, though, is that, uh, you know, the Gospels are the good news to the poor. And I wonder, you know, even even not spiritualizing that, right, <laughs> uh, taking that very literally, there's something about that class, like the, the class positionality that's sort of assumed in the people who are reading the Gospels. Um, that uh, you can't take for granted, I suppose. You know, the the, the folks in the Gospel and Soldaname, they kind of have these readings, and then, you know, the the sort of first century um, historical readings that Herzog gives you maybe may paints a different picture, that these are not just for the like, edification of the poor or, uh, or something, but they're really like an organizing manual, maybe, or something like that, you know, <laughs> maybe not exactly as explicit. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's about doing something, not just, uh, you know, thinking about, eternal life or whatever 
Yeah, I think that's that's what we need. We need uh, the book that presents Jesus as a revolutionary strategist, first of all, so that we can parse out exactly what's going on. You know, what what are the moves he's making in occupied territory, etc. That would be extremely useful. But but we also need like a more accessible version of what Herzog's book does. I think right, trying to. Uh, I guess, present the Bible in such a way that, as you said, it is good news to the poor. Uh, what what would it mean for it to be received as good news to the poor themselves? Mm-hmm. And I think doing that would, I don't know, make a huge difference for people in the pews. It would have made a big difference for me. I, I would much rather have uh, <laughs> tried to understand the good news to the poor than tried to understand, I don't know, why I'm whether or not I'm a, a servant who's burying God's talents or like <laughs> multiplying them on the, the stock market of divinity or whatever. Uh, really need to, you know, figure out how would it be good news to us to understand the Bible too as good news to the poor. I think it, it unlocks a lot of things. Uh, some, some, like, like enterprising seminarian out there should write like the popular version of this so that regular folks can <laughs> not have to have like a Bible degree to wade through Herzog's extremely boring uh, dialogue with like German historical <laughs> biblical studies. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast. If you support us on Patreon, you can get an invite to the Patreon-only Discord channel where you can you can tell us what you want us to talk about, <laughs> like happened you know, in this episode right here. Um, or you can just kind of come and hang. There's sort of a vibrant community of folks who are always talking about something in the old Discord, and it's worth being a part of, I think. Um, cool. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our actual music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord